0: Not being here last week, I'm not even sure if Bill continued the series on wisdom, but assuming he did, today you may all applaud if you wish, I think we will end it. It seemed like a wise thing to do. First, let me thank you for our leave uh, last weekend to visit children and grandchildren in Knoxville. The grandchildren were absolutely perfect. And as I said earlier, one of the reasons that grandparents and grandchildren get along so well is because we share a common enemy. Actually, the children were perfect too. We are grateful for being there, but also glad to be back. We're also glad to be here today facing the Jonah-like or the Noah-like flood that we uh, experienced this morning. I almost got flooded in on Riverside Drive. I hope none of you had to face a similar uh, issue. This morning's passage comes to us from a place in the Gospel of John that in its context is really important for us to understand, and it's in the 12th chapter of John. They have gathered at the house of Lazarus, whom Jesus has raised from the dead, if you remember the raising of Lazarus. And Mary, Lazarus' sister, comes in and anoints Jesus' feet for burial with burial perfume. That anointing was a foreshadowing of what was just about to happen. And then the next day after that gathering in the house of Lazarus, Jesus mounts the donkey on Palm Sunday and enters Jerusalem we know which is his ride unto suffering and death on the cross the announcement of that suffering the time is as at hand the hour has come comes in this morning's passage when Jesus says now is the way that God will make clear God's glory And in John, the glory of God is that which is always revealed in the suffering death of Jesus Christ. Hear now the gospel as it comes to us in the 20th verse of chapter 12. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, "'Sir, we wish to see Jesus.'" Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. And then he goes into this very personal and poignant place. We are let in on this by the gospel writer. Jesus says... Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is the word of the Lord. The wise, old, late, sage, satchel, page, said, How old would you be if you didn't know how old you are? It's a good question, especially as it relates to our own spiritual and emotional maturity into wisdom. I have a friend whose son, they say, was born... Middle aged. That is, that he is one of those persons that we say is a wise old soul. He likes being around older people. He takes life very seriously. He leans toward being uh, too serious, in fact. He's introspective and sensitive and compassionate. And it doesn't seem like he has a lot of fun in life. I'm not sure if he was born a wise soul. Maybe he was born and he came into a family that treasured wise souls, and he soon picked that up and got some feedback from it. Maybe he was just a little more introverted and introspective. I don't know. Maybe some of both. While there are perhaps those who are born with an old soul... I suspect that most of us uh, are more on the other side of the continuum, which is that we don't want to grow up at all. This tends to be, without being too sexist, a male trait. There are plenty of folks who, instead of ending up wise old souls, never get much past adolescence. I can give you a list of all those character traits, but I'm sure you probably have enough of them in your own experience. There's even a name for it. It's called the Peter Pan principle or syndrome. I won't grow up. I won't grow up. I don't want to go to school. I just don't want to parrot and recite a silly rule. You know the song. Wise Old Soul, huh? Or Peter Pan? Actually, I think most of us are somewhere in between on the continuum of the curve. But I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. This morning I want to talk about the process, this process of what growing up into wise old souls looks like. It is the process Jesus, as well as every other wise sage, knew that we must follow in order to grow up spiritually and emotionally. Basically, it is this. Unless we die to ourselves, basically our egos, we will not fully live in ourselves. Unless we fall, And fail, we will not learn to stand on our own two feet. Unless we fail, we will never completely succeed. This is the way of the kingdom of God. It is the way toward what is good and real and true and joyful and compassionate and lovely. And finally, it is the only way to wisdom. As much as we hate it, it is. This is what Jesus is talking about in this passage, and it's not just here. Everywhere Jesus is talking about this. Not only did he point to constantly uh, this fact in his teaching, his whole life lived it out in his suffering servanthood and his dying on the cross. The passage said some Greeks came to see Jesus. That's important. Because the Greek mythology at the time what is known as gnosticism believed that the way to spiritual enlightenment was to leave the dirty and and dark and deathly confines of the ground and earth and to rise up into the seventh heaven and become more spiritual so they they didn't trust earthly things they didn't trust it because it was finite They go to Jesus, hoping that Jesus would show them the way up into the spiritual realm. They wish to see Jesus. And when they go, Jesus instead flips the whole thing on its head, as Jesus is prone to do, and says to them, if you're looking for spiritual mysticism, it comes only as the seed falls into the earth and dies. Back down, not up, but down where it will bear fruit. Those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever loves me must follow me. And where is he growing, going? To the cross. In other words, get your heads out of the clouds and your feet back on the broken ground of earth and Get working where joy abounds, even where there is suffering and death. This is what Jesus points to over and over and over again for us to follow, and that is a place of growing up spiritually and emotionally that takes seriously the pain and suffering in life while also the joy and resurrection. For those of you who may know Richard Rohr, I'm reading a book right now called Falling Up. I think some of you may have already read it. It's, it's his constant refrain from this Franciscan monk. He's got a blog out now called The Second Part of Life. Um, he hammers on this theme constantly, which is basically, unless we suffer... Fall and surrender and fail. We will never grow up spiritually into mature old souls. The first half of life, he says, is the appropriate time to build our egos and our containers and our selfhood. It comes with respect for authority of civil and religious law for, with self-discipline, with a so, strong sense of nationalism and ethnicity and a dualist Black and white understanding of life, good versus bad, right versus wrong. That's sort of the first half of life, the container around which we build our lives. the If you want to talk about the Maslow's uh, lowest level of hierarchy, the, the level of security. This kind of container building is absolutely vital in our world, Rohr says. The job of life in the first half is to build this ego, this selfhood, this container, so that it can envelop and embrace and hold the larger meanings of life that will come later, maybe sooner. And without a strong moral and ethical and disciplined community around you, a law to bounce ourselves off of and to discover what limits are we cannot build a strong enough ego and container and selfhood to hold the larger points of life. It's always fracturing too fragile and small. Then add access to infinite amount of knowledge or information on the internet without a larger narrative or story For us to follow other than our own personal, this is how I feel about it, preference, without any larger communal or tribal teaching, without good mentors, without strong parents and principles, we end up with a pick and choose morality based on emotional reactivity fed mostly by fear and our narcissistic ego needs. I know that's a lot to swallow. This is evident by gang violence, CEO pay scales, radicalized religion, bullying, and bombastic rhetoric, and narcissistic—I didn't coin the phrase—patho adolescent behavior. This sounds like where we are today politically, and with each, uh, and in our world. With all the momentum towards separatism and nationalism, it's no accident. Tony Blair's comments after the Brexit vote sum it up, the right attacks immigrants while the left rails at bankers, but the spirit of insurgency, the venting of anger at those in power, and the addiction to simple demagogic answers to complex problems are the same for both extremes, underlying it all is a shared hostility to globalization. In other words, our containers are falling apart. Our established institutions and organizations are falling apart, as are the selves that help create them. This is not always such bad news, by the way. In fact, it is our biggest hope Because in the end, like with every transition, as it falls apart, God is more than ever active in rebuilding something brand new. If the first half of life is about building this ego container, then the second half of life is about finding what it is in life important enough to put in it. From success to significance, it is said. The rules somehow end up letting us down. We may lose a job. We may have some humiliation. We may have a disease or a divorce. Often it is an addiction. Whatever the cause, it is that moment of fall, of failure, of falling, when we discover, like Icarus, the Greek God who flew too high with waxed wings that our egos will eventually do us in and bring us back down to earth earth humus which by the way is the source, the etymology the the, the meaning of the word humility this is the truth that Paul, that Paul and Jesus and all of the sages say that Unless a seed dies, it cannot bear fruit. It is built on the whole formation of our Western civilization from the Odysseus mythology of the Iliad and the Odyssey to the first biblical story of Adam and Eve, remember, the fall, to the Brothers Grimm and most fairy tales, to the Cleveland Cavaliers and Dustin Johnson thought that was genius, by the way. (laughs) Until they failed enough, they couldn't move up to the place of wisdom and maturity and success needed to win. Walter Brueggemann, in fact, says that the whole Old Testament is built on this process. The Torah, the laws, the commandments are that first stage of life, law, obedience part. Of growing an identity, which Israel grew in the wilderness as they followed the commandments. But soon those commandments became more than they should have, and it became their whole ego process. Of course, that ego would let them down and they would fall. The prophets proclaimed the coming of that fall as the battle of uh, the Babylonians came and sent them into exile, burning the temple and the city. Second stage, the fall third stage comes the wisdom literature, the Torah, the prophets, the wisdom literature, Job, and Ecclesiastes, and the Proverbs, and Paul. That literature which says life is not so easy, it's not so black and white, and either or, that life is really both and. That wisdom literature that says we do not get the answers to most of our deepest questions. In fact, God is so mysterious, we are not Able uh, and capable of understanding God. Fascinating. Finally comes the dunima, the love of Christ, the suffering love of Christ on the cross, which is the highest level of spirituality. Now, I've said to you that this is good news. That we must suffer and something must die in order for us to grow. And everyone will sooner or later. It is in that transition place that we are called to claim through our hope and faith that God is about to do something brand new. This is why the most hopeful words in all of the English language to me begin with re, reborn, Restored, redeemed, recovered, revised, revitalized, refreshed, recharged, reimagined, and finally, reformed. This is good news not only for us individually, but for the church. All the studies point to the fact that the church is in fall. The numbers are down. The passion is down. Compared to what the church was, at least in the Western sense of it, in the 50s, we are much, much different. Millennials see the church as being irrelevant. Denominations are becoming less important. We are in descent. We're falling back down to earth, and we're waiting to be reborn. While this is on the descent side scary it is in fact the source of our greatest hope and joy after the cross comes resurrection always when our souls grow old and wise enough then we are able to see it all of this all of this could best be said through the children's story by marjorie williams the velveteen rabbit In fact, I asked Emily Haig if she would consider telling this story to the children this morning. And she wrote back, what? Reminding the children that their fur should fall off and all their hair be pulled out is the way unto God? Sure. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath, and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out. But he was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger, and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away. And he knew that they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced like the skin horse understand all about it. What is real? asked the Velveteen Rabbit one day. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you were made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, most times, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off." And your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. May the Spirit of God be for us the understanding of this word.